Hello everyone, I'm Kathleen Pelly. Welcome to the special omnibus edition of Journey with Story, where you can listen to all of this month's episodes one after the other. And just so you know, there will be no special intro for the individual stories, no added details and no shout-outs. If you want to hear all of those, then you'll need to listen to the individual episodes and not this version. Got it? Oh, mums, dads, grown-ups, you can download some free colouring sheets at our website, www.journeywithstory.com. Let's take an omnibus journey with story. Now, let's take a journey with How the Whale Got His Throat. On the sea, once upon a time, oh, my best beloved, there was a whale, and he ate fishes. He ate the starfish and the garfish, and the crab and the dab, and the place, and the dace, and the skate, and his mate, and the mackerel, and the pickerel, and the really, truly, twirly, whirly eel. All the fishes he could find, and all the sea, he ate with his mouth so. Till at last there was only one small fish left in all the sea, and he was a small, stute fish, and he swam a little behind the whale's right ear so as to be out of harm's way. Then the whale stood up on his tail and said, I'm hungry. And the small, stooped fish said in a small, stooped voice, Oh, noble and generous cetacean, have you ever tasted man? No, said the whale. What is he like? Oh, nice said the small, stooped fish. Noise, but but nobly. Then fetch me some, said the whale, and they made the sea froth up with his tail. One at a time is enough, said the stooped fish. If you swim to latitude 50 north and longitude 40 west, that is magic, you will find sitting on a raft in the middle of the sea with nothing on but a pair of blue canvas breeches a pair of suspenders, you must not forget the suspenders, best beloved, and a jackknife, one shipwrecked mariner, who, it is only fair to tell you, is a man of infinite resource and sagacity. So the whale swam and swam to latitude 50 north, longitude 40 west, as fast as he could swim, and on a raft in the middle of the sea, with nothing to wear except a pair of blue canvas breeches, a pair of suspenders. You must particularly remember the suspenders, best beloved, and a jackknife. He found one single, solitary, shipwrecked mariner, trailing his toes in the water. He had his mummy's leave to paddle, or else he would never have done it, because he was a man of infinite resource and sagacity. Then the whale opened his mouth back and back and back, 
till it nearly touched his tail. And he swallowed the shipwrecked mariner and the raft he was sitting on and his blue canvas breeches and the suspenders, which you must not forget, and the jackknife. He swallowed them all down into his warm, dark, inside cupboards. And then he smacked his lips. So and turned round three times on his tail. Imagine a picture of the whale swallowing the mariner with his infinite resource and sagacity, and the raft, and the jackknife, and his suspenders, which you must not forget. The buttony things are the mariner's suspenders, and you can see the knife close by them. He is sitting on the raft, but it is tilted up sideways, so you don't see much of it. The whitey thing by the mariner's left hand is a a piece of wood that he was trying to row the raft with when the whale came along. The piece of wood is called the jaws of a gaff. The mariner left it outside when he went in. The whale's name was Smiler and the mariner was called Mr. Henry Albert Bivens A.B. The little stute fish is hiding under the whale's tummy, or else I would have drawn him. The reason that the sea looks so ushy-scushy is because the whale is sucking it all into his mouth so as to suck in Mr. Henry Albert Bivens and the raft and the jackknife and the suspenders. You must never forget the suspenders. By the way, if you're wondering why the writer's talking about a picture... If you get the book from the library about how the whale got his throat, then you'll see some drawings in there of the whale and Mr. Henry Albert Bivens and the stute fish. Back to the story now. But as soon as the mariner, who was a man of infinite resource and sagacity, found himself truly inside the whale's warm, dark, inside cupboards, He stumped, and he jumped, and he thumped, and he bumped, and he pranced, and he danced, and he banged, and he clanged, and he hit, and he bit, and he leaped, and he creeped, and he prowled, and he howled, and he hopped, and he dropped, and he cried, and he sighed, and he crawled, and he bawled, and he stepped, and he leapt, and he danced hornpipes, which he shouldn't have, and the whale felt most unhappy indeed. Have you forgotten the suspenders? So he said to the stute fish, This man is very nobly, and besides his make me up, what shall I do? Tell him to come out, said the stute fish. So the whale called down his own throat to the shipwrecked mariner, Come out and behave yourself, I've got the hiccups. Nay, nay, said the mariner, not so, but far otherwise. Take me to my natal shore and the white cliffs of Albion and I'll think about it. And he began to dance more than ever. You'd better take him home, said the stute fish to the whale. I ought to have warned you that he is a man of infinite resource and sagacity. So the whale swam and swam and swam with both flippers and his tail as hard as he could for the hiccups 
and at last he saw the mariner's natal shore and the white cliffs of Albion, and he rushed halfway up the beach and opened his mouth wide and wide and wide and said, Change here for Winchester, Ashelow, Nashua, Keen, and stations on the Fitchburg Road. And just as he said, Fitch, the mariner walked out of his mouth. But while the whale had been swimming, the mariner, who was indeed a person of infinite resource and sagacity, had taken his jackknife and cut up the raft into a little square grating all running crisscross, and he had tied it firm with his suspenders. Now you know why you were not to forget the suspenders. And he dragged that grating good and tight into the whale's throat, and there it stuck. Then he recited the following sloka, which, as you have not heard it, I will now proceed to relate. By means of a grating, I have stopped your eating. For the mariner, he was also an Ibernian, and he stepped out on the shingle and went home to his mother, who had given him leave to trail his toes in the water, and he married and lived happily ever afterward. So did the whale. But... From that day on, the grating in his throat, which he could neither cough up nor swallow down, prevented him eating anything except very, very small fish. And that is the reason why whales nowadays never eat men or boys or little girls. The small stute fish went and hid himself in the mud under the dorsals of the equator. He was afraid that the whale might be angry with him. Here is the whale looking for the little stute fish who is hiding under the dorsals of the equator. The little stute fish's name was Pingle. He is hiding among the roots of the big seaweed that grows in front of the doors of the equator. I have drawn the doors of the equator. They are shut. They are always kept shut. Because a door ought always to be kept shut. The ropey thing right across it is the equator itself. And the things that look like rocks are the two giants Moar and Koar that keep the equator in order. They drew the shadow pictures on the doors of the equator and they carved all those twisty fishes under the doors. The beaky fish are called beaked dolphins and the other fish with their queer heads are called hammer-headed sharks. The whale never found the little stute fish till he got over his temper and then they became good friends again. The sailor took the jackknife home he was wearing the blue canvas breeches when he walked out on the shingle. The suspenders were left behind, you see, to tie the grating with, and that is the end of that tale.
Now, let's take a journey with More Than a Match, an original fable written by author and storyteller Aaron Shepherd. There was once a man so wise that no one could say just how wise he was. He was also so old that no one remembered his name, and he'd forgotten it himself. So they called him simply the Wise One. Now the Wise One lived close to the kingdom's capital, which was called the City of Here. Just a day's ride away lay another city which was called the City of There, and the single road between them carried many travellers by horse, cart and carriage. One day, when a merchant from here had ridden his horse halfway to there, he came upon a huge man standing in the middle of the road. The man was half again taller than the merchant and dressed like a merchant himself. The giant shouted, None shall pass without a fight. Choose your weapon, dark or light. I'll more than match you, wrong or right. Mind, squeaked the merchant, and he fled back to the city, warning everyone he met on the way. It was not long before he told the king too. Dear me, dear me, said the king, what must I do? What must I do? The queen leaned over to him. Darling, why don't... Oh, not now, my love, said the king. I must listen to my council of three. The first counsellor lifted his finger. Your Majesty, a king must protect his subjects and uphold their right to travel where they wish. One of your warriors must battle the giant. Send the master of Clubs. Oh my, oh my, said the king. But he called for the master of clubs and gave the order. The next morning, the master of clubs rode out till he came to the giant, who was now dressed up like a master of clubs. The giant bellowed, None shall pass without a fight. Choose your weapon, dark or light. I'll more than match you, wrong or right. The brawny warrior dropped from his horse and growled, I choose clubs. But as he raised his own club, the giant raised one bigger and heavier. Whomp! And the master of clubs was shorter and wider than before. The flattened warrior raced back to the king. Ah, dear me, dear me, said the king, and again asked, What must I do? What must I do? Darling, said the queen, why don't you? (gasps) Not now, my love, said the king. My counsellors will surely know what's best. The second counsellor pulled his ear. Your Majesty, this is a great insult to your kingdom and must not go unanswered. Send the Master of Swords. Oh my, oh my, said the king. 
but he called for the Master of Swords. The next morning, the Master of Swords rode till he came to the giant, who was now dressed up like a Master of Swords. The giant roared, None shall pass without a fight. Choose your weapon, dark or light. I'll more than match you, wrong or right. The lanky warrior sprang from his horse and cried, I choose swords. But just as he drew his own sword, the giant drew one longer and sharper. Swish, swish. And the shirt of the master of swords hung in shreds. The tattered warrior raced back to the king. Oh, dear me, dear me, said the king. What must I do? What must I do? Darling, said the queen, why don't you ask? Oh, not now, my love, said the king. At times like this, we must trust to the councillors. The third councillor tapped his nose. Oh, your majesty, oh, your kingdom now faces the gravest of challenges to its very existence. Oh, you have no choice but to use your most powerful warrior. Send the master of fire. Oh, my. Oh, my, said the king. But he called for the master of fire. The next morning, the master of fire rode till he came to the giant, who was now dressed up like a master of fire. The giant thundered. None shall pass without a fight. Choose your weapon, dark or light. I'll more than match you, wrong or right. A ruddy warrior leaped from his horse and barked, I choose fire. He swiftly lit his torches and tossed them at the giant, one after the other. But the giant caught them and threw them back, faster, burning brighter and hotter than before. Whizz, whizz, whizz. And the master of fire was singed from head to toe. The smouldering warrior raced back to the king. Ah, dear me, dear me, said the king. What must I do, what must I do? But not one of the counsellors could say. Then the queen leaned over once more. Darling, why don't you ask the wise one? Oh, my love, said the king. A wonderful idea. I'm so glad we thought of it. And he called for the wise one. The wise one arrived next morning and listened carefully to the king's story. Then he said, I will go at once. With a cart and horse loaned by the king, the wise one drove out till he came to the giant, who was now dressed up like a wise one. The giant shouted, None shall pass without a fight. Choose your weapon, dark or light. I'll more than match you, wrong or right. Well, said the wise one, I shall have to think on this. And so saying, he settled himself to ponder. The giant stood stone still. After a while, the wise one's stomach grumbled. He reached into his bag for a loaf of brown bread and broke off a piece. He was about to bite into it when he heard a growl from the stomach of the giant. Perhaps you too are hungry, said the wise one pleasantly. He held out the piece of bread. Would you care to share my humble repast? 
So, cried the giant, you try to conquer me with kindness, but now I'll more than match you. Almost faster than the wise one could see, the giant took from his own bag a table and chair and all manner of tasty wholesome dishes fit for a wise one. Grains, cheeses, vegetables, fruits. Then, before the wise one could look twice, the giant stood there again, solid as rock and blocking the road. Ah, so that's the way of it, murmured the wise one. Up he got from the cart and sat at the table to enjoy the giant's offering. When he had eaten enough to satisfy his hunger, and a little more, he leaned back contentedly and gazed thoughtfully at the giant. I should like you to know a little about me. I live in a cottage in a forest outside the city of here, and though I make no such claim for myself, others call me the wise one. The giant bellowed. Another contest, but you won't win, because now I tell you even more about me. I have no name, for my father is the wind and my mother is a curved mirror. Like any mirror, I show only what I see, and I have no power or skill but what you choose. Ah, I thought as much, said the wise one, rising from the table. But the day is more than half done, and I must reach the city of there before dark. He stepped up to the giant and smiled kindly. May I offer you a ride? The giant screamed. You dare to challenge me again? This time I'll best you once and for all. He picked up the wise one, then the cart, then the horse, all together. Then he raced down the road as fast as any wind, all the way to the city of there. The giant set them down gently at the city gate. I hope you have at last learned your lesson, he said. Oh, I have, said the wise one breathlessly. I thank you for it, and so will the king and all his subjects, I'm sure. Then the giant raced back up the road and was out of sight within seconds. And ever since then, thanks to the wise one, travellers between here and there have only to bring themselves half of the way, and then they get a ride from the giant. Let's take a journey with all for a paisa. A paisa is a small coin used in India where this story takes place. There lived in the valley a very wealthy merchant who was not at all happy with his only son. The boy showed no signs of intelligence or creativity, much less any willingness to work. His mother always thought the best of him, however, and was constantly making excuses for him. When the lad reached the age to marry, his mother begged the merchant to seek a proper wife for him. The merchant, however, was too much ashamed of his lazy son 
and in his own mind had fully decided never to have him married. But the mother had set her heart on this. It was the one thing that she'd been looking forward to for years. To have her son remain a bachelor all his life would be unthinkable. She simply would not agree to this for a moment. And so she urged excuses for her son. She claimed to have now and again noticed extraordinary qualities of wisdom and intelligence in him. Her speaking in this way only annoyed the merchant. Look here, the merchant said to his wife one day when she had been praising her son. I have heard this many times before, but you have never once proved it. I do not believe there is a particle of truth in anything that you say. Mothers are blind. However, to satisfy you, I will give the fool another chance. Send for him and give him this one small coin, this paisa. Tell him to go to the bazaar and with this one paisa to buy one item. That one item must be something to eat, something to drink, something to chew on, something to plant in the garden, and some food for the cow. The mother told the boy these instructions. She gave him the paisa and the boy left. When he came to the river, he became alarmed and wondered, Oh, what can be bad for only one paisa? To eat and drink and do all the other things my mother asks for. Oh, surely this is an impossible task. At that moment, the daughter of an Idensmith came up. Seeing the lad's unhappy expression, she asked him what was the matter. He told everything his mother had ordered him to do. I know what you can do, she said. Do you know what she's going to tell him to do? Can you think of the answer to this riddle that provides something to eat, something to drink, something to chew upon, something to plant in the garden and some food for the cow? Here's the answer. I know what you can do, she said. Go and buy a watermelon with one paisa, said the girl. It provides something to eat, something to drink, something to chew upon, something to plant in the garden, and some food for the cow. Give it to your parents and they will be pleased. And so this is exactly what the boy did. When the merchant's wife saw the cleverness of her son, she was very glad. Look, she said to her husband as soon as he came home, this is our son's work. Actually, mother, said the boy, the daughter of an Idensmith advised me to do this. And nevertheless, the father was impressed 
that the lad had found such a fine solution. And so they invited the family of the Idensmith to their house for dinner. Both parents were pleased to see love bloom between the two young people. And so the daughter of the Idensmith married the merchant's son. And the lad became a hard-working young husband. And they all lived happily ever after. Let's take a journey with the Royal Snore Snuffers. King Hamish was a very noisy king, loud and blustery like a big blast of wind. Everywhere he went, doors banged, windows rattled, walls shook and armour clattered. His wife, Queen Fiona, was a very quiet queen, soft and hushed like a whisper. Everywhere she went, she glided and tiptoed and floated as silent as a snowflake. But despite their differences, this noisy king and this quiet queen lived together in perfect peace and harmony for many a year and a day until one night King Hamish began to Snore. His snores were not just the piffling whiffling kind of snores that most people make, where soft puffs of air sidle out between trembling lips. Oh no! King Hamish's snores were rip a roaring, whoosh whooshing snorters of snores. All night long, his lips bounced and blubbered together as gigantic jets of air blasted out. Meanwhile, Queen Fiona tossed and turned. She sighed and she tatted. She poked the king. She prodded him. She even shoved him out of bed. But nothing worked. All around the chamber, through the castle's nooks and crannies, up and down the chimney pots, the royal snores rattled and rumbled and roared. In the morning, King Hamish awoke to find the whole castle in disarray. Servants quarrelled and bickered. The Queen scowled and scolded. The royal beagles snapped and snarled. Why is everyone so grumpy? demanded the King. No one answered. Only Taffy the parrot gave him a screech and a squawk. What a noisy nuisance you are! cried the King. Then he sat down to breakfast and roared in dismay. What's this? No barley bannocks, no fried kippers, only a bowl of lumpy porridge. Queen Fiona stifled a yawn. Oh, it's your own fault, she whispered with a frown. Your noisy snores rattled down the chimney pots all night long. And no one in the castle caught a wink of sleep. And now cook's too tired to cook. 
Oh, dear, wailed King Hamish. I will send for the royal physician at once. Surely he will know how to stop this snoring. That afternoon, bustling into the castle with his bag of potions and pastes came Dr. McSniffle Snuffle. After examining the king, the doctor wagged his bony finger. Your majesty is too fat, he scolded. No more raspberry trifles or sticky dumplings for you. That will snuff out your nasty snores. King Hamish did as the doctor ordered. In a few weeks, he grew as thin as a reed and as sour as crab apples. But his snoring did not stop. Instead, his snores grew thinner and shriller, warbling and wavering higher and further than ever before. All around the chamber, through the castle's nooks and crannies, up and down the chimney pots, and across the courtyard, the royal snores rattled and rumbled and roared. Whatever is the matter? bawled King Hamish the next morning as he flung open his shutters. My pipers aren't piping, my fiddlers aren't fiddling. A sleepy voice mumbled from below. I'm sorry, sire, but now no one in the courtyard can sleep through your snoring and we're all too tired to make music. Oh, oh dear, cried King Hamish. First the cook can't cook, now my pipers can't pipe and my fiddlers can't fiddle. I will send for Granny McMuckle at once. Surely the wisest woman in the kingdom will be able to cure my snores. That afternoon, into the castle bumbled Granny McMuckle, dragging a dozen feather pillows and a sack full of thistles. We'll just sprinkle your side of the bed with crushed thistles and raise up your head on the pillows, she said. That should snuff out your snores. But his snoring did not stop. Instead, his snores grew scratchier and bristlier, spouting and spraying higher and further than ever before. All around the chamber, through the castle's nooks and crannies, up and down the chimney pots, across the courtyard, over the brae, down the glen and across the loch, the royal snores rattled and rumbled and roared. In the morning, a messenger from the neighbouring kingdom of Loch Naree stood at the castle gates. Unless this abominable racket ceases forthwith, war will be declared, he announced. Oh dear, oh dear, wailed King Hamish. We can't have that. I will call for Finlay McFiddle Faddle. Surely he can stop this snoring. That afternoon, the royal inventor, a willowy old man with a matted grey beard that trailed to the ground, hobbled into the castle. In his hand, he clutched his latest invention, a nose-shaped pouch attached to a long wooden pole. Don't worry, sire, he croaked excitedly. Whenever your snoring starts, I will plop my pouch over your nose and snuff out the snore. That night, when the first snorific snore rumbled out, Finley McFiddlefaddle jumped into the air. Up and up he leapt, thrashing his paw from side to side. Down and down he crashed 
tripping over his beard, capsizing the chamber pot and flopping onto the royal bed with his spindly legs jangling in the air. Oops! he muttered. Ah, what a scunner! shouted the king, and he sent the inventor packing with a royal chamber pot clamped over his head. Not to worry, my dear, he told the queen. Go back to sleep. It is time for me to find my own cure for this dreadful snoring. So the king clattered off to the kitchen to ponder his predicament. As the cook dozed by the fire and Taffy the parrot snoozed on his perch, King Hamish sat at the table with his head in his hands. Ah, oh, maybe some kind of potion or paste would help, he thought. Maybe a magic spell? Some herbs, perhaps? Or I could go and live in another castle in another kingdom far, far away. Ah, oh, but how lonely I would be without my fair quiet queen. And the thought of such a catastrophe so perturbed the king that he burst into a bellowing sob. The cook jolted awake. Oh, sorry, sorry, cook, wailed the king. I never meant to wake you, but... Suddenly, King Hamish stopped talking and he stared at Taffy the parrot. How very odd, he said. That bird hasn't so much as twitched a feather, despite all the din I made. Oh, he's deaf, sir, explained the cook. Deaf as a doorpost these past ten years and more. Deaf? Deaf? screamed the king. Why, that's the answer. And he scooped the cook up into his arms, kissed her soundly in both cheeks, and danced a merry jig all around the kitchen. By cock crow, King Hamish was pounding through the castle. With a gaggle of servants in his heels, he called for tailors and seamstresses, bales of cotton, spools of thread, dozens of needles and scissors. After hearing the king's orders, the tailors and seamstresses set to work, cutting and tucking, rolling and folding and stitching. Then messengers rode out to every corner of the kingdom and beyond, leaving a package on every doorstep with a label that read, The Royal Snore Snuffers. That night, when King Hamish went to bed, he began to snore, as usual. But all through the chambers, through the castle's nooks and crannies, up and down the chimney pots, across the courtyard, over the brae, down the glen, and across the loch, the royal snores rattled and rumbled and roared. But no one in the kingdom or beyond heard a single piffling whiffle of a snore because everyone was sound asleep with an earplug wedged into each ear. From that night on, despite their differences, this noisy king and this quiet queen continued to live in perfect peace and harmony for many a long year and a day.
I hope you enjoyed all of our stories for this month. And if you subscribe to our Patreon page, you can enjoy even more perks and resources. Here's to stories aplenty that fill our hearts with grace and goodness, hope and light, so that we remember, as my favourite poet says, All shall be well, all shall be well, and all manner of things shall be well. Be well, my friends, be well, and join me next time for Journey with Story. Music and post-production was by Colette Jonas.